Before we begin today's program, I wanted to share some big news I've been sitting on for the last year. You've probably noticed the change in the Between the Covers logo. Well, Tin House has adopted the Between the Covers podcast in a partnership with KBU Radio. And this is the first episode where you will officially find the new show archive online, beautifully redesigned by the Tin House Art Department, no longer at davidnayman.com, but now at tinhouse.com slash podcasts. So what's this all mean otherwise? First of all, I will still be scheduling individually and independently based on my own tastes and discretion. You aren't going to suddenly see me interviewing a preponderance of Tin House authors. But that said, part of the appeal of partnering with them is this huge aesthetic overlap we have. Not just the people they've published who've also been on the show, Tommy Pico, Morgan Parker, Lacey M. Johnson, Ursula K. Le Guin, Karen Russell, Melissa Phoebos, Lainey Zumas, to name a few. But if we consider the people who've taught at their writing workshops, from Carmen Maria Machado to Marlon James to Solmaz Sharif to R.O. Kwan to Therese Marie Myatt, all of whom have been on Between the Covers as well, it just feels like a natural fit. The other appeal is that Tin House won Vita Count's inaugural award for how many women they've published in their pages, and also for all the reviews they've done of work made by women. And their writing workshops offer scholarships for the recently incarcerated, for undocumented immigrants, for single parents, for students at the Institute of American Indian Arts, for emerging writers over 40, to just name a few of their scholarships. The intersection between art and social justice that the workshop has been striving for is one that I also aspire for with the podcast as well. The other reason for me is to expand the show's reach. About one half of 1% or maybe three quarters of 1% of listeners are also supporters of Between the Covers. And as small as that sounds, these supporters have been revolutionary for me when several years ago I wasn't sure if I could continue doing the show because of rising costs and the amount of hours I spend on the podcast instead of on my day job. I'd love to increase the number of people who both listen and support the show, and this can happen obviously both by growing the audience size, which hopefully having Tin House as a platform will do, but also by enticing more listeners to becoming supporters. I'm not drawing a salary or income from Tin House directly but they are offering a lot of new incentives on the Patreon site beyond the Ursula K. Le Guin book and the access to the bonus audio archive that is already there. This includes everything from passes to the afternoon craft lectures at the summer writing workshop to featured new Tin House releases to getting galleys of upcoming releases well in advance of them going on sale to the general public and a whole bunch more. So you can find the show now at tinhouse.com slash podcasts, and you can find the Tin House swag at patreon.com slash between the covers. So in summary, the main things you're going to notice different as listeners is the beautifully redesigned website, a whole slew of new incentives and gifts if you become a supporter of the show, and brief Tin House related news at the beginning of each episode. Finally, in the spirit of this new Tin House partnership, we have an unusual 
amount of bonus material. For those subscribing to the bonus archive, we are adding Marlon James reading his essay, Why I'm Done Talking About Diversity. And for anyone supporting the show at Patreon at any level, we're adding an amazing hour-long craft lecture Marlon gave at the Ten House Writers' Workshop in 2015 called The Nine and a Half Rules of Seduction. Again, all of this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. I had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the novelist Marlon James, best known for his Man Booker Prize winning novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, which made James the first Jamaican author to take home the UK's most prestigious literary award. A Brief History also won the American Book Award, the Annisfield Wolf Book Award, the OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean Literature, and the Minnesota Book Award as well as being a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Marlon James has a degree in language and literature from the University of the West Indies, an MFA in creative writing from Wilkes University, and teaches writing at McAllister College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's the author of the novel The Book of Night Women, which won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Minnesota Book Award, and John Crow's Devil, a New York Times editor's choice, and a finalist for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. His short fiction and nonfiction has appeared in the New York Times, Esquire, Harper's, GQ, Granta, and the Caribbean Review of Books, and he's here today to talk about his first book since winning the Booker, one of the most anticipated releases of 2019, the first installment in his epic fantasy Dark Star trilogy entitled Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Science fiction magazine and book publisher Tor says this of Black Leopard, Red Wolf. If Charles R. Saunders' Imaro series opened the door to new ways of telling epic fantasy, and N.K. Jemisin's Inheritance trilogy leapt over the threshold, then Marlon James' Black Leopard, Red Wolf just ripped the whole damn door off its hinges. Luis Erdrich adds, This book begins like a fever dream, and merges into world upon world of deadly fairy tales rich with political magic. Black Leopard, Red Wolf is a fabulous cascade of storytelling. Sink right in, I guarantee you will be swept downstream. And finally, Neil Gaiman says, Black Leopard, Red Wolf is the kind of novel I never realized I was missing until I read it. A dangerous, hallucinatory, ancient Africa 
which becomes a fantasy world as well realized as anything Tolkien made, with language as powerful as Angela Carter's. It's as deep and crafty as Gene Wolfe, bloodier than Robert E. Howard and all Marlon James. It's something very new that feels old in the best way, and I cannot wait for the next installment. Welcome to Between the Covers, Marlon James. Thanks for having me. So you said that you believe we should be writing books that we want to read, Mm -hmm. and that Black Leopard, Red Wolf comes from a desire to see what you weren't seeing in the fantasy world. Mm -hmm. But you've also described yourself as a fantasy nerd. Right. So maybe we can start not with what you weren't seeing, but maybe with the ground upon which you stand, like the, mm-hmm. the, the fantasy touchstones for you that you mm-hmm. were immersed in before you started writing Black yeah. Leopard, Red Wolf. Uh, my, fantasy touch, my fantasy touchstones were all pop touchstones. Um, I didn't read a lot of the rings until, I mean, pretty much after the movie came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't read Dune until I was an adult and most of these novels because they just weren't around in Jamaica. Nobody would have had them um, except rich kids. Um, so, you know, my, my fantasy upbringing was comics mostly. So we're talking superheroes and, and sci-fi comics, um, you know, heavy metal magazine, which somebody may have left somewhere and, and I'd find, um, it was whatever I could grab, you know, get my hands on. A lot of my fantasy language actually comes from novelizations of movies, uh, you know, which you could find in any pharmacy, any drugstore, anywhere. So, um, you know, I remember that I actually read Star Trek Wrath of Khan. I didn't see it. Oh, I wow. read Empire Strikes Back. I read Return of the Jedi. Um, you know, I read Dragon Slayer. Um, these are movies I didn't see until, you know, we got cable in the 90s. So that was my fantasy. My fantasy world was, again, very pop and very whatever... Um, I could get my hands on the, the sort of masters of fantasy are people I didn't read until, you know, way into, into adulthood. Um, when did you read Ursula K. Le Guin? I know you, mm-hmm. you've mentioned her as an influence before. Yeah. And since we're in Portland, I, I thought I'd ask you yeah. when, when was, when was there an intersection with her work? Um, probably around my second novel. So again, most of these, um, you know, books I read, you know, as an adult, as an adult, um, again, because of, of, you know, being in Jamaica, you read what's available and you read what other people are reading. You also read what they feel like lending you. Um, yeah. So a lot of that was, um, a pretty adult thing. So my, a lot of my, um, fantasy upbringing to the point where I would want to write fantasy came from the, the stuff that I read and the stuff that I just, you know, couldn't get my hands on and feel like I wanted to read. So you've attributed the original idea of this trilogy to a, a fight you're having with a friend around the casting of, of The Lord of the Rings or mm-hmm. The Hobbit. Can, the Hobbit. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it, you know, they announced the cast, and it was so it was so lacking in diversity. There was almost none, if I remember. I mean, maybe there was, but certainly not enough to, to, to pay attention to. And um, it was just me going, oh, God, where, where are we? We're going to have this argument again. I argue about representation. My friend will argue about it's a European story, um, which is exactly what happened. I'm like, why isn't this a more diverse cast? It's 2010. I think it was 2010. And his response was, well, you know, it's, it's a European story. It's a British story. It's British mythology and blah, blah, blah. And I said, dude, a lot of the rings isn't real. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. You know, it's, it's like when, uh, you know, and Megan Kelly said Santa Claus is white. Santa isn't real, Megan. <laughs> uh, you know, you you can do whatever you want with it. It's it's um, if we have had that attitude, Star Trek would never become what Star Trek became. Yeah. And uh, but, you know, the argument kept going. And after a while, I just get I got tired of arguing for inclusion in somebody's space when I could just create my own space. And I think that's what happens sometimes. You get, we just get exhausted asking for a seat at the table, so we just build our own tables. Yeah. And um, at first, when I went off into African mythology, it wasn't to write, it was to read. Because it's one thing to say, you know what, I'm going to focus on African mythology and myths and legend, but it's not like I knew them. Why would I know them? Nobody taught them. Um, well, I was going to ask you mm. that actually about whether how much you knew about them or not, mm. because I know that the actor who's playing who played Killmonger is mm-hmm. is going to adapt to this series, mm-hmm. right? Well, he was either quoted or or misquoted, or mm-hmm. maybe quoted out of context in in Vanity Fair when he said, "I'm talking about the Black Panther movie. Mm-hmm. We don't have any mythology, black mythology or folklore. Creating our own mythology is very important because you help people dream." Mm-hmm. And I'm not that interested in whether he was quoted correctly or not, or whether mm-hmm. he actually believes that, but it made me wonder, like, how available were these mythologies for Yeah, you? he got a lot of flack for that, but I know exactly what he was saying. And um, one of the, 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 the sort of responses he got was, that, well, he's just ignorant about you know, African mythology and blah, 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 and there's so much around. But I, but I was ignorant of it, too. I mean, there is stuff I know because of my grandfather telling me secrets. But most of the stuff that I wrote in this book, I researched, and I did a two years of it. It's not. It's it's easy to take for granted myth, the myths. Um, you know, the, the myths tell us who we are. If you are European descended, those myths are always there. Those legends are always there. If you're in the Americas, for a lot of black people who haven't been able to access these stories, Ground Zero is slavery. And as somebody who actually wrote a slavery novel, even I am tired of that. So I totally get where he's coming from. Um, It's one thing to say that these stories are around, these myths are around, but who would have taught him? Um, Which school would have, you know, I, I learned Greek mythology in school. I didn't learn a single thing African or Arab or Native American in, in school. So if, if if we're talking about the status quo as it is, there's no way you would have known those things. There's no way I knew about it either. All of that was um, from research. I wish it wasn't. And there are certainly people out there who know more than me or knew more than me at the time. But I had to, I had to do some serious um, in-depth research to come to that. And how difficult was it to get beyond or around a sort of mm. a European gaze when you're looking at some of the material mm. in your research around Africa? It's, it's extremely difficult. For one, that means any history book written beyond the past 30 years is useless. Um, any, most books in Africa are, are trash. Um, there are one or two European scholars I could trust. But even then, you know, I teach English. I teach writing. So... Half of what I do is just deciphering the coding in all in the stuff that people write. So at one point, the research was just a, a kind of a comedy. It's 
let's see how quickly we can see the bigotry in this line and so on. And, and so there's a lot of that. There's reading judiciously. There is um, catching up on all the latest research, still going through some of the bashes. A very, a, a, a pretty, here's, a, here's a, a, a pretty recent example. We still call the Great Zimbabwe as if it's one. And everybody says the Great Zimbabwe. There were dozens of Zimbabweans. Oh. The ruins are all right there. But as recently as 2010, there were still documentaries acting like it was an African Stonehenge. Hmm. Like there was one. No, there was a whole valley of fortresses, a whole valley of Zimbabwe's. But we still um, tie into this sort of African Stonehenge, was it built by aliens, um, <laughs> you know, kind yeah. of thing. Um, so they have to go beyond that, have to de- you know, decipher that. And um, sometimes it means going to the, the folk tales, some of which are only recently translated. Hmm. Um, it means me going through the boring stuff. I have no problem reading what that, that scientist read. When I grab a, a research book, whatever it is, the first place I check is the bibliography because I want to read what they read. And if you're going to do something like that, you have to go to the original sources, the boring documents, the logs, the, 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 the stuff that's not sexy. Well, talking about sort of deciphering coding, to me, it seems like a smart move that you sort of said the hell with the Hobbit, because mm-hmm. in a way, like it's not just like your friend says, European mythologies, at mm-hmm. least in the books, but it feels like it's sort of a, a defense of different iterations of, mm-hmm. of European values. Yeah. And like when you have like the... Scandinavian like elves and the Welsh mm. or Scottish like hobbits, mm. but the evil creatures I don't think coincidentally or um, and, and perhaps suspiciously they mm. don't come from a non-specific elsewhere. They come from the south and they come mm. from the east and they ride creatures called olifants. Mm-hmm. So there is it feels to me like there is a racial coding and that maybe mm. there would be an entering of a mm-hmm. like if you put other characters in it yeah. who were not white maybe they would just be. Uh, non-white characters in a white space. It'll be orcs. <laughs> well, they are. They are. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I am, um, I am far. I, you know, I'm, I'm actually hugely influenced by by Tolkien. Um, right down to the point where I had to spell check, so I have to make sure I don't have too many Tolkienisms in the book. But I also think Tolkien and and C.S. Lewis and these guys are products of their time, and even the whole idea of the dark continent. Or the whole idea of all these things that we associate with darkness, whether it's it's the witching hour or even something as simple as the word blackmail, mm-hmm. um, is stuff that they're products of their they're products of their time. I find I'm nowhere as as I'm not offended by by Tolkien at all as I am say by H.P. Lovecraft, right? Who's just a straight up racist. Um, but there is this sort of, and it's a it's a very it's not even a sci-fi thing. Or even necessarily a racist thing, as it is a British thing, of of this distrust of the other, and the other always comes from the south, hmm. and the other always comes from darkness, and the other always it's it's um, anything. It's always coming from outside. And, uh, it's funny. Um, the whole notion of public health, for example, is a British concept, but it came out of the idea. That um, disease, if it's coming, is always coming from the outside. It's always coming from the dark continent. It's coming from the locals. The idea that there's always something 
about to infiltrate. And that's just that's something as simple as public health, which, yeah. which is you know, which well, is I standard think the vam- now. The vampire myth around the mm. influx of of Jews into England was mm-hmm. is partially influenced the vampire myth. I think, yeah, too. there's always this idea that somebody outside is coming for you, and it's interesting how that is one of the myths that have endured. Look at any murder mystery, um, even you know the the really really smart. The really, really smart detective fiction writers know that the, the enemy was always within, but uh, the, the characters all think is outside. Is always is always um, stranger comes to town. This sort of um, outside thing, which reflects a kind of xenophobia that's still in Britain. Look at Brexit. Yeah, well, it's the one way in which I feel like you have a strong connection to Tolkien is the sense that you've sort of created an African Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not Africa, mm-hmm. and it's not a specific time. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a abstracted from time and place, but mm-hmm. you also make an, a nod to a specific uh, time period and to Africa yeah. In, a, yeah. in a more general sense. So I was hoping you could talk about why the 9th and 10th century mm-hmm. appealed to you as sort of the, some of the reference points mm-hmm. on, on the way in which you would create this world. Yeah. Well, one of the things that really appealed to me is there are parts of Africa that went from Stone Age straight to iron without going through bronze. I think that's remarkable. And it, it's, it's one of the many cases of accelerated society that happens it's below the Sahara. And I think, and, mo- and the book happens, the bulk of the book is below the Sahara. It could have been easy for me to set it above the Sahara and go, whoopee, pyramids. You know, and then go, ooh, build right. that aliens. Um, but there is still this idea and certainly by people like people like me, ignorant people like me in the diaspora believe that civilization was above there. Um, the backward people were below the Sahara. I mean, one of the reasons why we don't have these kingdoms anymore is that the British burnt them down. Um, you know, Benin City had, had Benin City had streetlights. Um, you know, almost all those cities had a very functioning grid. Hmm. They were trading with the Indians, with, with Indians and South Asians for centuries. Um, granted, sometimes that was slaves. But <laughs> um, I, I, I like those centuries because society was still being formed. Um, you know, it's, it's, and even then it's pretty loose. That's why I say it's closer to Conan the Barbarian or Star Wars. Or, yeah, Middle Earth. Yes, Middle Earth is clearly drawing from, from Dark Ages. And it's drawing from Dark Ages in a way that people in the Dark Ages would have read the Dark Ages. Hmm. And um, and that's how I'm doing it as well. It's it's kind of those centuries, that time period, but that's a European counting system. And also, it's 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 for me, it was more important that it was the world as people at that time would have seen it. And at that time, I would have taken mermaids for real. I'd have taken spirits and demons and 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 and, and shapeshifters. These are these are real. These aren't. Um, you know, fantasy creatures that um, you can look at with a certain wink. The 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 characters have to think it was real, and I wanted to do it. I thought of it almost more as a what would an African historical novel read like if Africans from that time wrote it, and that's how it would that's how it would play out. I mean, I'm sure somebody maybe a thousand years from now will find a Christian document quite ridiculous. Uh, maybe not, maybe, maybe not, but yeah. it's the same. But we take it as a standard of rational thinking now. So, yeah, so I had to go back to, well, 
you know, what would be what would be real for them. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Marlon James about Black Leopard, Red Wolf. So, I mean, this is interesting because it's it's the dark ages for Europe at this mm-hmm. time, but it's definitely not the dark ages for Africa. So mm-hmm. you've sort of reoriented to a, an African-centric mm-hmm. sensibility. But I, I wanted to, you to talk a little bit about what you'd mentioned earlier about Britain and darkness, but more mm-hmm. about qualities that are associated with darkness, mm-hmm. how European myths have a certain relationship to night, to midnight, right, to right, ghosts, right, right. and they're very different than the relationships mm-hmm. in African traditions. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the relationships to night and ghosts and darkness from an Abs- African yeah. perspective, and also what dark star yeah. refers to. Well, I mean, if I say to you, noon of the dead, and I say, noon of the dead is midnight, um, there is a series of connotations that immediately went off in your head. Um, the witching hour, um, you know, that um, I always think of that, 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 um, that Disney sequence that I'm amazed happened, that Halloween all rising of the demons sequence that has done, I think, to flight of the Valkyries. It's the darkest thing Disney ever did. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still amazed they did it. But we think of that. We bring all our Western folklore witches, demons, things that go bump in the night, um, the things that associate with dark, the things that associate with black, the things that, and, and so on. And, and I grew up in this. I, you know, I mean, I'm speak English. I, I grew up with all this, and I'm proud of all that. I'm proud of having all of that. Um, but noon of the dead is actually the most wonderful time of day. Midnight is actually a fantastic time because then you get to be with the ancestors. Um you know, it, it's 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 to to it's I find it's very easy to draw a parallel with Black Panther. Um, you know, there are scenes in Black Panther where T'Challa goes in a trance and meets his father, and the father is a panther who comes on from the tree. That's the noon of the dead. So why wouldn't you want to? It's a it's a fantastic time of day. Um, whereas high noon, broad daylight in some cultures is the scariest time, because their monsters have no problem killing you in daylight. They want to. See, they want people to see that they can kill you, so they're they, they're going fear. Um, you know, African vampires don't shrink at sunlight. They'll they will kill you in broad daylight. They really don't care. Hmm. So the whole idea that it's 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 evil feeds on the time when they can most see. They, it can be most visible. As opposed to sneaking away in the shadows. Right. So it, it, it completely, for me writing, it was a complete reorientation, you know, having people up on a boat in the night but disappear um, by noon. But the reason why it's an orientation is, again, because of all the sort of connotations that we associate with darkness and with night and with so on, which is a very, a very sort of European folklore kind of thing. And what does Dark Star refer to? I mean, Dark Star is a lot of things. Dark Star is Ghana for what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, the, 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 the Black Star. Um, for me, Dark Star, you know, is just it, it's it's um, you know, it's it's the spring from where all life comes from. Um, I think again, we think that the darkness is evil, but my second novel is called The Book of Night Woman, and the reason why they're called that is. They there's a passage where the character says that this is why we're dark, because in the night we vanish in the blackness and become one. Hmm. And I think that's that that darkness and dark star is that yeah we're dark because we we become one with 
with you know with the night and and it's a period of great power and rich spirits and so on so to me the dark star is like you know it's the future it's the wealth of the nation it's it's you know i'm still defining it when you said you you think of black panther um i was thinking a lot of black panther also mm. as another example of, of something that's flipping the point of view and and making africa uh or making the narrative africa centric mm-hmm. and it was interesting sort of reading the various analysis of that movie because mm-hmm. obviously there's arguments uh, valid arguments for sort of revolutionary aspects mm. of it, but there were also rea- uh, accusations of it being reactionary. And mm. some of the the most outspoken critics were African critics, like mm. the Kenyan journalist Patrick Guitara, who wrote for the Chicago Tribune an article mm. called "Black Panther Offers a Regressive Neocolonial Vision of Africa," and it felt like every article that extolled radical elements there was another one like mm. how black panther liberalizes black resistance for white comfort mm-hmm. and regardless of where anyone falls on that spectrum it did feel weird that it felt like killmonger was offering a um, legitimate critique of wakanda mm-hmm. and yet we sort of end up cheering for this white cia agent mm-hmm. against killmonger in the movie so i guess this is just a long-winded way of making me wonder what considerations you had as you were working on an African-centric point mm. of view to sort of um, not reproduce or reiterate mm. uh, colonial colonial visions? Um, you know, the, the the thing is, no matter how hard I try, I'm sure there'll be a bunch of of critics from from the continent who are going to say that about my book anyway. And to a huge extent, I don't care, um, but. I the first thing I well firstly I wasn't as concerned with rulers and leaderships and government as as Black Panther was. Right. Um you know I I started out writing a story about kings and queens and it just wasn't happening and I flipped everything around and go what if I start in the street? In fact what I start in prison which is where it starts and then it goes backwards and eventually deals with um with uh, you know with you know, with politics. I also, you know, I resist the whole idea that um, a sci-fi fantasy novel is some sort of modern allegory, which I think people keep thinking. It's like, I'm not making any statement about the present day. You know, if I want to, I mean, I'm a pretty competent contemporary novelist. I can write a novel in the present day if I want to make a present day statement. Um, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, I, I mean... Colony didn't enter it for me. Um, the, the 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 stuff I was researching was pre-colonial, but even pre-Islam. Um, and I and the the it was also very important for me that the book doesn't try to be smarter than the characters. Hmm. If my characters don't care about where you know about politics and colonialism, because. You know, they're hunters and such and such. They don't sit around philosophizing on the, the, the politics of the day. Then why am I doing it? Um, and, uh, you know, it's 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 very – I can understand the pressure Black Panther faced. And and I have a feeling no matter what they did, they would have been criticized. Um, because it's how do, you, how do you, one, tell a superhero story? How do you venture into the continent without offending different countries in the continent? Um how do you you skip the 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 the, the neo colonialism, yeah, the the or the orientalism? How do you not exoticize things that people should remember? Also, is that Black Panther is still the work of people in the diaspora. My book is a book from somebody in the diaspora. I didn't grow up on the continent, right? 
Um, and to an extent, it reflects my diaspora you know, upbringing. It's one of the reasons why I chose fantasy, because then I can still have a space, you know, a space to invent. Yeah. Well, you've you've called the the plot a why done it instead of a mm-hmm. who done it, and so tell us what a why done it is, and maybe you mm-hmm. could give us the um, the elevator pitch of of what the plot of of mm-hmm. black black leopard yeah. red wolf is. Well, a why done it? We already know the outcome. Um, you know, it's it's like um, it's yeah, it's like reading this novel, The Perfect Nanny by Leila Slimani. We we know the big, we know the outcome. She murdered the kids. Um, why did that happen? Why did that happen? To me, is a more interesting story than who, what, when, mm-hmm. where. So it's how can you retrace your steps and tell me how we got to this point? And um, and that's what you know the 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 story is. As for the novel, uh, you know the basic plot is you know a slave trader hires these mercenaries to find a child who's been missing for three years. And at the end of, end of the, the, the mission, it's not even really ended. The mission stops because the child end up being murdered and these people may be responsible. So there's an inquest and each witness, there are three witnesses, each witness tells the same story. Just that each story is a separate novel. Yeah. So it's not a part one, part two, part three. Yeah. In other ways, it's kind of the same story being told three times. Yeah. So we're told this story in, in the first book from the perspective of a character named Tracker. It's Tracker's testimony to an inquis- inquisitor. Mm-hmm. And you've talked, you, you talked just now about how you spend many years researching before you begin writing and that you don't start writing until you've gotten the character's voice right. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about Tracker as character and, and how you see Tracker's voice. One of the challenges with writing a novel in first person is that you're still figuring it out as you're writing it. Um, supporting characters are super easy. They just show up. Um, and a person who's telling a story, you're not just shaping his voice, but you're trying to shape his novel at the same time. So, it's, so it was very hard for me at one point to figure out his voice. And then it took me a while to figure out his purpose because so many people on this mission to find his child have a very specific reason. He really doesn't. And it's hard writing a novel when your character doesn't have a purpose. So for a while, a good, you know, dozens of pages in, even I couldn't figure out why he's in a novel. Um, And it became clear. That's why to me, reading a novel is like writing a novel. It became clear to me as as it progressed why he was there. Even he, you know, at one point goes, I'm interested in nearly everything here but the reason why we're here. It's like I really am not that interested in the kid. And I'm pretty sure the reader isn't that interested in the child either. But that's deliberate. That's because I am in the midst of writing the novel. I'm also trying to figure out why is this novel happening? Why why, you know, why is it there? Um, in the meantime, Tracker is very skeptical, and I am pretty skeptical. I don't write myself in my novels, at least I think I don't. But there is a, a, a skepticism and a sarcasm to him that I really, really liked and I really, really was attracted to because I think it's too easy, particularly when you have a fantasy novel of people on a mission, that everybody's noble mm-hmm. and everybody's humorless. You have the one jester for fun, but everybody's just so you know, noble where he is like, nah. <laughs> you know? No, in a way it felt like none of the characters, like the fellowship was a fellowship of, mm-hmm. of mercenaries. Yeah. 
Which, you know, should have been a warning to people. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, this, these are not people who are going to become friends. Um, although some one or two do, but, you know, they're being paid. They're being paid to find a kid, and the story keeps changing on them, so something, you know, fishy is up. Well, when I had Neil Stevenson on for his last book, Seven mm-hmm. Eves, which which has a line of seven women who, who would be the beginning of seven races of people with distinct character traits, mm-hmm. we talked about this tendency in fantasy of sort of a, a racial essentialism, mm-hmm. like the way the dwarves in Lord of the Rings were based on Tolkien's view of Jews as sort of a insular people that kept to themselves, mm-hmm. had a hard time integrating into the fellowship and, and hoarded a wealth deep mm-hmm. in, the mount, in the mountain. And, I, and whether Stevenson's Seven Eves was meant to be part of that or an interrogation of it. But, but one of the things that I, I really loved about Black Leopard, Red Wolf is, mm-hmm. is the way identity is constantly destabilized and, mm-hmm. and made really unpredictable. So, for instance, the tracker, it's hard to know what, what the tracker really is. At the mm-hmm. beginning, I'm not sure if he's a human, mm-hmm. but then I think he is a human, but with supernatural hound-like ability to smell and then when he loses an eye a witch gives him a wolf eye to borrow Mm -hmm. but it's not clear that the wolf eye gives him any powers beyond the restored vision Mm -hmm. um but you've said before when talking about characters and characterization that nobody is one thing Mm -hmm. so i was hoping you could talk about that because i Mm -hmm. feel like that is made literal in this book and tracker um, I like the feeling as a reader of not being on steady footing of of what or who Tracker is, not mm-hmm. just Tracker's motives, but sort of like the different parts that make up mm-hmm. Tracker's identity. Yeah. Well, almost everybody in the book in one way or another is a shapeshifter, not just the leopard who literally shapeshifts. Yeah. And um, an identity is so fluid. It's never permanent. It's never set. Um, and that, of course, spills over into sexual identity and it spills over into into um, gender and so on. But that was one of the things that was such a pleasure to learn from the research, just how fluid and how up for grabs all these things were. And I wanted that kind of sensory world, that sensual world in the book. I also think... Um, I think it's, for me at least, it's one of the things that was a very, very different from the fantasy I read quite a bit of, where a lot of those things are sort of cut and dry, um, to the point where they're dependable. They're things I want from my hero, and you know, which I get in, say, Strider. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked at Strider a lot when I was writing Tracker, actually. Um, but I kept going, what if Strider were in Game of Thrones? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, so, but it, it's it's... I think that there there are things that we hold on to to the point where they become kind of sources of prejudice, like the idea of what a man is and what is normal or what is straight, what is gay, what is so on. And it's not that I don't mind labels. I quite like man labels. But this is a world where those wouldn't be. There are no words for those. Um, there, there are some tribes with 14 genders. Um, there are some tribes that were perfectly fine with gay people. I mean, who else is going to guard our virgin brides? So they knew full well that their brides were safe because none of these men were into women. Um, and to me, that continual fluidity, that continual changes gave me an atmosphere of continuous surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always burgeoning, it's always changing, it's always mutating. 
it's always sort of shifting. And and to me, at one point, the novel just became this well right that I could barely hold on to, and I'm writing it. Uh, and but I wanted that, and I wanted um, I wanted an older world, and I also wanted to be very clear that older generations, people from a th- 500, 600, 1,000 years ago, were in a lot of ways more adept with dealing with shifting human nature than we are. It's like just read the Greek, just read the Greek plays. Um, you know, it's 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 one thing to have a, a you know a tragic hero who you know killed his own brother. That's Shakespeare. I mean, in Greek tragedy, he killed and ate the brother. So <laughs> uh, you have to deal with that. This is still a complicated, you know, a complicated character. Yeah, it's in, it's it's so interesting to me how sensual, how shifting, how always mutating, how up for grabs, how amoral the ancient stories are. By the time 19th century Victorians and so on got through a lot of these stories, they become almost biblical stories. But look at the old, you know, the the old version of Snow White, you know, the old version of Sleeping Beauty, the, the, the original fairy tales before they were tidied up for children. Everything is up for grabs. It's so pagan it's so sensuary it's so sexual body vulgar um but also real it's weird that stories about fairies can be more real about human nature than stories about real life mm-hmm. and i think because those ancient storytellers just understood human nature mm-hmm. and i think that's one of the reasons why they run to the you know the myths we, we look to the myths to, to to figure out human nature Let's let's talk more about the way gender plays out in the mm-hmm. book, uh, because Tracker is in an in-between space mm-hmm. in the sense that he's a human with a wolf eye and a wolf smell. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a man whose father is also his grandfather, mm-hmm. a man who chooses to entrust the enemy of his own people with the care of of the people closest to him. So mm-hmm. he's a he's a boundary crosser. He's a boundary crosser by, by nature. Mm-hmm. But he also is a man who contains a woman, mm-hmm. which is a phenomenon that isn't exclusive to him. Right. And there are also women who contain men, mm-hmm. but most people in this world resolve this boundary crossing state, this mm-hmm. in-between state into one state or mm-hmm. the other. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about um this phenomenon of being right. a man who contains a woman mm. and then why people are looking at Tracker with either ridicule or suspicion mm. because of it. Well, the the way in which they he's a man, he's uncircumcised and I think, well, um as long as you have a foreskin, you have you you have the woman on top of the man and you're both and you need to be one or the other. And as long as a woman has, you know, a clitoris she has the man inside the woman and so on. And this is how we've, you know, a lot of cultures in Africa have used to justify circumcision, particularly the female circumcision, which is a horrible practice. And Tracker can't see the reason behind it. For one, if we believe the gods made people, then you're saying the gods made a mistake. So then you're shaming the gods. It's like, if you believe in gods. So Tracker finds the whole thing ridiculous. Either you, you think gods are a joke and you're doing it just because you like to cut people, or the gods are real and you're defying them. Hmm. Um, but the idea, and he comes to the point where he actually likes the idea that I am neither and I'm, and I'm both. And that if we're built this way, then maybe, we, maybe they should be. And... Um, and that kind of in betweenness, that non-binariness, which is what we call it now, um, 
was something that is is again it's not a these are not new things i you know i was telling i was telling an audience um a couple of days ago i was like congrats on using plural pronouns you know africans been doing that for four thousand years <laughs> i'm I'm glad you all caught up yeah <laughs> and you know? it was true in the english language mm. three or four hundred years ago I yeah think. they as a singular yeah there's a singular even the nature of trans some men transform to women, some women transform to men, some stay in the position of trans and are happy to be there. That's, these are not new things. These are things we have, society has found ways to accept and cherish before. Um, we allow things like Puritanism and evangelical Christianity and, uh, and all these things to, to get in the way and poison that. But for me, that was one of the great joys of the research. Um, as a queer person, I felt so validated. I'm like, oh, you know, my continent actually made space for me thousands of years ago. Mm. Um, you know, until a bunch of TV preachers showed up and tell them no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, that world was just so, um, you know, exciting. And it, it, it's the thing that was most exciting to me is that that was not the, the new elements in the book. That was the old elements. That was the most retro part, you know, of the book. You've written before about how you you didn't you weren't gay in Jamaica because being so wasn't an option, mm -hmm. and that you were pushed into gay conversion therapy by priests there. And mm -hmm. when I'm thinking about how Tracker finds home, not with family or with his people of origin, but mm -hmm. by sort of following his uncanny smell for what is going on with each and every person. Mm -hmm. I wondered about the considerations that went into how you wanted to portray both sex and love between mm -hmm. between men, mm -hmm. um, because you've mentioned before the way you've you've portrayed gay characters in your books has evolved mm -hmm. as you've become more comfortable with your identity. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. The way you've portrayed gay characters has evolved. So how how is this portrayal different than your portrayals in the past? And what are some of the questions that or um, interests you had in how you mm -hmm. wanted to um, portray? Mm -hmm both sex and love? Well, I think the first time I portrayed queerness in my first novel, it was still filtered through, it's filtered through um, projection of fears and desires instead of writing real people. Um, this is a very real thing. It's not just with, with queerness. I see it a lot of times when people write black characters. Lord knows when 90% of men write women. Um, those aren't women. That's a projection of your desire or your fear that you've reacted to. Mm. Um, and that was the same thing with that that character. So... He was queer, but he was a villain. He was queer, but he had syphilis. Um, I had to actually do some work with that first novel to make sure that 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 it that sort of um, homophobia that the people had in the village didn't spilter into a homophobic view in the novel. And that can be tricky. It's like, did you write a racist character? Or did you write a racist novel? Um, did you write a sexist character? Or did you write a sexist novel? I think a lot of writers even today don't know the difference. Um, the difference is, is there a, an awareness of the world you're writing and is there a countering view? Mm -hmm. um, jump to my last two novels, which have queer characters and very active queer characters, that those prevailing views are there and the counter view is there. And the, and the, the, the particular with the, this most recent one where um, the characters and the society therein are almost over it. It's something that he declares, even though they're they're you know, they're actually homophobes in the book too. But I, you know, 
I was in a lot of ways just drawing from a more ancient time and a more, I guess, a more pagan time, I guess, where you know those boundaries just, just you know, just weren't just weren't there. Um, and I knew if for this novel. Again, I have to write the world as if the characters in the world take it for granted. So it's great that I have a wild-eyed wonder about queerness in ancient Africa, but those characters are over that. Right. So it still has to be matter of fact. It still has to be something that they, with absolute ease, slide into. Um, and yeah, and 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 you know that is the kind of scene or the kind of scenes I don't think I'd have written in my first book. Hmm. Um, almost in 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 you know in in brief history, my third book, which also has a major major queer character, but in this one, it was just the ease was different for me, hmm. and the sort of matter of factness, and the fact that even in 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 my previous novel, the character who's gay at sometimes still feels he has to declare it, whereas I don't think Tracker does. Mm-hmm. He's just like, yeah. well in case you just tuned in we're talking to marlon james about black leopard red wolf it feels also kind of like tracker that the fellowship that is formed to find the missing child is is fluid and unstable Mm -hmm. and i think partially because of what we already talked about that they're not unified by a noble goal Mm -hmm. but by their own potential self-interest and other and and contradictory interests Mm -hmm. You've said before that the characters you love the best are ones that you are the most deeply conflicted about. Mm-hmm. And you've held forth Jane Austen as a master in this regard mm-hmm. of giving her most unsavory characters the most developed worldviews. Mm-hmm. So who are the characters in this book that you found most unsavory and yet pushed yourself yeah. to give us access to them in yeah. a way that maybe you wouldn't have if you weren't a writer? Mm-hmm. I really didn't want to fall for the character Nika. Because Nika is a person who betrays Tracker in a really, really horrendous way. And I didn't want to fall for him. Um, you know? But there's a part where he he doesn't recognize Tracker, but he knows he knows him. And he says, I know you. I've kissed your face. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> he, he, it's, it's, I like, I like making things complicated for the reader in terms of how they feel about characters. Um, I don't like easy villains and I don't like easy heroes. I mean, fan, I'll have one or two easy monsters. But, you know, I, um, characters like Nika, characters like Sogolon, um, characters who, who end up on the wrong side of the story. Um, for me, it's still very important that we know why they got there. And also that a lot of these guys have these redeeming qualities that you may make the danger of thinking they're good because the redeeming qualities are just so, so um, you know, redeeming. But even even characters who, you know, who sign on to this mission because they have a covert um, reason, ultimately those reasons end up being pretty, pretty um, legit. One of the biggest, you know, villains in the story has a serious about face. Except he didn't. It's not the reader. It's not the character that changed. It's the reader that changed. Yeah. It's you as a reader realize, oh, wow, I did not see that before. And you have to completely recalculate your view of a character who's been an antagonist for most of the book. I think that was mm. one of my greatest pleasures as a reader was that sort of narrative vertigo. Because mm-hmm. unlike, say, orcs, like where killing an orc is sort of like squashing a bug. Like there's mm-hmm. not a lot of uh, 
moral deliberation and uh, maybe more like Game of Thrones, like the so-called enemies to have turnabouts, have mm-hmm. where we all of a sudden have a vertigo around understanding and maybe even empathizing for something that they're doing mm-hmm. against someone else that we're cheering for. Yeah. So we we're we're placed in an uncomfortable place where there isn't a hero mm-hmm. ultimately. But I but I like that uncomfortable place, and I think we should be. In that no, I, I do too. Place. I think um, we, I you know, for me, I love when I you know. On one hand, I love when a villain gets their comeuppance, but I also love when I still miss them. Um, you know, when when they're gone, um, and uh, you know that to me is, is something I try to do. And you know, when I'm when I'm writing, that um, yeah, th- these th- these um, you know these characters, these bad people, or whatever you want to call them, you know, they have followers for a reason. Is it's it's complicated, and I think. Um, in a novel, you should have a complicated relationship to to characters. The good characters do bad things too. They make decisions you don't like, and they go in directions that you know is a, you know will be will be a mistake. And they switch allegiances that make we quest, make, that makes us question them, you know too. But it's but life is like that, you know. It's it's um. You know, we're never we're never disappointed by people we expect to disappoint us. You know, this is, you know, it's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. Yeah. Well, let's drop down to the level of of language and syntax mm-hmm. for a minute, because you've said that to write this book, you had to unlearn everything about mm-hmm. how language works, mm-hmm. character works, story works, and even how truth works. But tell us a little bit about what you had to unlearn about okay. how language works, for instance. Well, one, some of it we've talked before about connotations what dark means mm-hmm. and what white means and, and so on. So there's that. But then there's also rhythm and there's also um, um, just our systems. Like in the book, um, most of the characters, you know, count in, in blocks of, say, 10. So there is no 11 or 12. It's 10 and 1, 10 and 2. Um, you know, it's that, you know, it would be 119. It would be 110 and 9. So things like that, or so many African languages, um, the verb always stays present tense. So a character like Sogolan always speaks in present tense. And I think she also always speaks in singular. She never uses plurals. Hmm. Um, because, again, that's how a lot of these languages are. Um, some, one or two characters some, speak something that's closer to pidgin and so on. The, 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 the thing that they all have in common is that they're not descending from a British culture way of speaking. It's not just English. We, 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 we speak a British English, and we speak a British... In fact, more than that, I know I grew up with a British colonial English. So the more proper I sound is the more I sound like I'm the butler, which is, of course, was deliberate <laughs> on the British part, right. on, on, on their part. Um, I knew I had to get... One, I can't escape English. That's, that's my language. Um, I was going to write a novel in Yoruba. I don't know it. Um, and the ones, the languages that I'm learning, I'm sure they don't know them enough to write that way. Plus, I didn't want to turn African languages into Elvish. Because then, you know, I mean, talk about patronizing and racist. Right. Um, but I knew I wanted to write a kind of English that did not flow like it was Ram of the Ancient Mariner. Or, or Tom Jones, you know, or even Huck Finn or Catcher in the Rye. And um, so... A lot of 
so uh, you know studying a lot of the epics looking at, at even different languages in translation how they conjugate a sentence together how they put words together um so one, another reason why this thing took two years before i wrote before i wrote a word because i knew i knew i had to get the language right in the way in which well in what i thought was right um because i think it's too easy it's too easy to do the disney thing where you just make everybody speak a sort of jive talk even though it's set in India. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of like a Jar Jar Banks. Yeah, not as bad as Jar Jar Banks. That guy was just, that 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 was a horrible mistake that should never have happened. Yeah. But even if you watch um, you know, the original, you know, the animated jungle book, where everybody's speaking that kind of jazz speak, mm-hmm. which I like, but it's a very it's a very sort of Disney thing where regardless of where I'm setting it, I'm giving you this kind of American idiom. So you're you're more at ease with it. So maybe this is a good time to hear a little bit of the prose. Mm -hmm. The child is dead. There's nothing left to know. I hear there is a queen in the south who kills the man who brings her bad news. So when I give word of the boy's death, do I write my own death with it? Truth eats lies just as a crocodile eats the moon, and yet my witness is the same today as it will be tomorrow. No, I did not kill him though I may have wanted him dead. Crave for it, the way a glutton craves goat flesh. Oh, to draw a bow and fire it through his black heart and watch it explode black blood, and to watch his eyes for when they stop blinking, when they look but stop seeing, and to listen for his voice croaking and to hear his chest heave in a death rattle saying, Look, my wretched spirit leaves this most wretched of bodies, and to smile at such tidings and dance at such a loss. Yes, I glut at the conceit of it, but no, I did not kill him. Biojo rienu apamo. Not everything that I sees should be spoken by the mouth. This cell is larger than the one before. I smell the dried blood of executed men. I hear their ghosts still screaming. Your bread carries weevils, and your water carries the piss of the tenant who guards and the goat they fuck for sport. Shall I give you a story? I am just the man who some have called a wolf. The child is dead. I know the old woman brings you different news. Call him murderer, she says, even though my only sorrow is that I did not kill her. The red-headed one said that the child's head was infested with devils. If you believe in devils, I believe in bad blood. You look like a man who has never shed blood, and yet blood sticks between your fingers, a boy you circumcise, a young girl too small for your big, look how that thrills you, look at you. I will give you a story. It begins with a leopard and a witch, grand inquisitor, fetish priest. No, you will not call for the guards. My mouth might say too much before they club it shut. Regard yourself. A man with two hundred cows who delights in a patch of boy skin and the coo of a girl who should be no man's woman, because that is what you seek, is it not? A dark little thing that cannot be found in thirty sacks of gold or two hundred cows or two hundred wives. Something that you have lost. No, it was taken from you. That light, you see it and you want it. Not light from the sun or from the thunder god in the night sky, but light with no blemish. Light in a boy who has no knowledge of woman. A girl you bought for marriage, not because you need a wife, for you have two hundred cows. But a wife you can tear open because you search for it in holes. Black holes, wet holes, underground holes for the light that vampires look for. And you will have it. 
You will dress it up in ceremony, circumcision for the boy, consummation for the girl, and when they shed blood and spit and sperm and piss, you leave it all on your skin to go to the Iroka tree and use any hole you find the child is dead. And so is everyone. I walk for days through the swarm of flies in the blood swamp and skin-slicing rocks in the salt plains through day and night. I walked as far south as Omororo and did not know or care. Men detained me as a beggar, took me for a thief, tortured me as a traitor, and when news of the dead child reached your kingdom, arrested me as a murderer. Did you know there were five men in my cell? Four nights ago. The scarf around my neck belongs to the only man who left on two feet. He might even see from his right eye again one day. The last man was a boy. He cried. He was too shaken to beg for his life. I told him to be a man in his next life, for he's less than a worm in this one, and flung the knife right into his neck. His blood hit the floor before his knees. And let the half-blind man live, because we need stories in order to live, don't we, priest? Inquisitor, I don't know what to call you. But these are not your men. Good. Then you have no debt song to sing to their widows. You have come for story, and I am moved to talk. So the gods have smiled on both of us. We've been listening to Marlon James read from Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Well, when Sophia Samatar was on, she was talking about this idea from Wai Chi Demok that the epic is the genre of contact Mm -hmm. where characters are entering new regions and towns and coming across people with different customs and beliefs. Mm -hmm. And that it's essentially the genre of cultural encounter, even Mm -hmm. though it's also the story often of conquest and the wiping out of the Mm -hmm. people that are being encountered. So Samatar's questions were around, could I write an epic uh, of encounter without the conquest? Mm -hmm. Um, But another thing I think about with epics is how they were traditionally sung Mm -hmm. so that, um, part of the reason why Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad have these repetitions, either syntactically or, or otherwise, mm-hmm. is it helped with memorizing right. and hold and sort of holding uh, place holding. Mm-hmm. Black Leopard, Red Wolf is is definitely an epic of of cultural encounter, and it engages with this African sh- tradition of the griot. So I was hoping mm-hmm. you could talk to us a little bit about the griot. In general, I mean, the griots were the, were the original recorders of history. Um, you were born into it. Usually you come from a family of griots and, and it's part of the tradition. And, and royal houses, noble houses would have, you know, griots telling stories of their lives. Um, but griots could also be influenced and griots could also be bought. So they're not going to tell, you know, if I'm in the employ of this person, I'm not going to write, you know, I'm not going to sing a song, a story that's negative. So there, so a lot of these song, the other things that the Greers did were actually praise songs, um, history, humor, but also praise songs. So there, you know, there is that. But the the certainly in my book, the fact that there is a Greer also meant you were important. Um, uh, you know, there's a scene I think where my character has a final confrontation with his monster, and I think that was his that was his most withering insult. Like nothing, nothing you do will be recorded by a Greer. Hmm. And it just enrages the guy. <laughs> the, the, the guy, um, because they they were they were the record keepers and historians, and um, and even now they they play you know they play a role in in contemporary 
in contemporary African, you know, in Af- contemporary African society. There's also that's the way in which we kept the overall tradition. It's funny because a lot of these these um, nations, these tribes, these people, a lot of them at some point still already had a see a, a kind of writing and a way of communicating, but the 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 oral tradition of song um, remain. Because a song remained the place to, to record history and, 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 and tell stories. And not just the recording it, but the fact that you have it recorded and the fact that you that somebody has decided that you are important enough that I will memorize your history, mm. you know, was um was really was really important. That said, as I said before, these people, you know, could also be bought. They could also be corrupted. It could also be. It's like you know. It's like a. It's like a history book from Texas. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Like right. um, there. The, you you know. I I I agree. It can be influenced by me to into changing the story where you're the hero of the war, hmm. and and so on. It. But you know that goes back to the whole thing about the trickster telling the story. Like um, belief is something. Truth is something. You have to do some detective work, and find out. Is it true that part of your audiobook is sung? Yeah. That, you know, Dan Graham did the audiobook. Every time a griot appears, he actually sings it. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> no people are going to expect me to sing that. <laughs> and I'm not doing You're that. You're not doing it? No. No? Oh, He's darn. like, raise the game with my own book. <laughs> <laughs> so so when you were on Charlie Rose, you, mm-hmm. you talked a little bit about how at the beginning of your career as a writer, you had trouble writing women characters. Mm-hmm. And, and that part of that was you weren't reading enough women writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I enjoyed about the portrayal of women in this book was how, particularly with the witches, they seem to care less about the agendas or the opinions of men. Mm-hmm. And since we're being told the story from the point of view of Tracker, um, these women are, are both simultaneously, obviously powerful and capable and intelligent, mm-hmm. but they're also inscrutable with unclear and unrevealed agendas mm-hmm. because of the point of view we have. So talk to us about the process of creating dimensional female characters here in, in this world. Uh, that was tricky because we have a narrator who's kind of a jerk and a narrator who doesn't always have the highest opinion of woman. Um, what do you do with a unreliable character? Um, it's 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 a lot of it is, is it goes back to the fundamental rules of writing an unreliable character. Um, are we seeing enough of these characters to contradict or at least complicate his own view? So that was the first thing that had to happen. So these characters had to have their own voices, and we had to have see, see scenes where they vouch for themselves. Um, there was a lot of that. Although I like to think Tracker learned and grew um, as as you know as the novel um, progressed, but. I, you know, that's something I learned writing probably more my second novel, even more than my first, um, is that we have to believe that women of agency, we have to believe they have the capacity, the capability of a change, even if they don't, or if they change for the worse. I realize it's not necessarily what they do. I used to think, oh, well, let's just not have them do horrendous, horrible, evil things. That's not it at all. Medea kills her children. It's... um. Do we believe at all times that these characters are real? It goes back to what I was saying before about um, fear and desire. Um, are these women, did I reflect them? Did I embody them? Did I even observe them? Or did I just throw my fears and desires on them and reacted to them? 
And I think as long as you don't do that, or you forget, or you 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 remember that that is not a character, that's a projection, then you end up with real, you end up with real characters, you end up with real women, regardless of what the narrator wants to say. Yeah, I mean, you have some, perhaps similar to the utopianism of Wakanda, there are these forces in the book who want to establish perhaps a utopian matriarchy in the book, mm. but. Um, but at any means, by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of some. There are some aspects that remind me of Ursula Le Guin's story: "Those Who Walk Away from Amalas," mm-hmm. where a great societal good is only achieved by uh, uh, accepting a morally re- mm-hmm. reprehensible trade-off. It's Thanos. <laughs> Thanos from, from you know, it's 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 Avengers Endgame. No, it's not Endgame. Yeah. Avengers Infinity War. Yeah, it's. But it's such a dangerous place to be, and. Um, who makes those choices? Right. And who's going to pay for those choices? And who decided that that was actually going to be better? Which I think is the, 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 the choice. I think uh, like the character Sutherland thinks she's making. But there's a certain arrogance to that. It's like I've been, you know, I've been, I've been given the job of saving all of us from, our, from ourselves. Well, who asked you? And, and, and you know, it's, it's, um, it's very easy for that to turn into its own kind of sort of megalomania. Rather, there are few things that can be more dangerous than people thinking they're acting on the behalf of millions mm-hmm. and thinking this their it's their noble job to 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 bring back order um to the world that's so we ended up with the Holocaust and things like that you know and or even just people you know destroying so many things in the name of what they think is in the name of what they think is good let's touch a little bit on whiteness in this book, because even though whiteness is not in any way a propelling force behind the narrative, Mm -hmm. there are ways in which it enters the novel. So for instance, we hear of a kingdom where people's skin is paler than sand and every seven days they eat their own God, which Mm -hmm. I love that, that inversion of point Mm -hmm. of view. So the the Christians seem like savages. And then the queen, the queen, one of the Queens in the book is amazed by a character who comes from this kingdom because his Mm -hmm. skin is all these different colors because Mm -hmm. his, he's pale but the skin that's been exposed to the sun is darker. And, mm-hmm. and so she believes he looks like he's been patched together as a creature of different mm-hmm. races. And lastly, we have a section called white science and black math mm-hmm. and the actions of white scientists. So tell us a little bit about white science and, and black mm-hmm. math. And, and then also the way that whiteness is operating on the margins mm-hmm. of, of the world that you've created. Yeah. The one thing that I think a lot of the, the ancient African societies all have in common is such a premium put on the vibrancy of color. And we see, no, African fabrics that's exploding color. Um, color was a sign of, of vitality. Color is also a sign of wealth. Color is a sign of, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a sign of um, depth and character and, and beauty. Um, white seems blank. It's like when I was explaining to somebody why I can't write in silence. Like, silence doesn't sound peaceful to me. Silence sounds like deafness. That, um, that the color white, at, be, you know, at the best, it seems like the absence, you know, the absence of color. So it's not something that would be looked upon in a, in a very positive way unless you're deliberately getting to that point. Like, say you're having a birth ceremony or a rebirth ceremony. But when you're, re- when you're born, you're nothing. You're, you're nothing yet. So it's not all necessarily negative, but it's still all meaning a kind of blankness. 
um, you know. But I also thought of 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 the price you may pay for doing horrible things. Maybe that the things that make you vibrant and bold and 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 real and human would be constantly constantly erased until there's a void. And I think um, we sometimes we we in our westernness like to think a void is dark or a void is black, but a void is a void. A void is nothing. You know, black is something. Um, white paper looks like paper before we write on it. A white canvas is a canvas before we paint anything on it. If we come across a black canvas, we think it's already painted. It's just black. Mm. So at its best, white can mean potential. Um, at its worst, white can mean void and nothingness. And I think that um, certainly in the, the, the African territories I'm writing about and the cultures I'm writing about, there is so much premium placed on color that no color actually becomes scary. That's not always a good thing. Look at the one of the things that happens in, in the book and happens in real life is the wholesale killing of albino children. So it's not always a good thing that white is, you know, black is great, white is white is bad. Like it's some inverse. We're going to show the racist people what's what. Yeah, maybe. But then we're killing albino children. So it's not all good. And I wanted that in there as well. Mm. That while, you know, the white scientists are people who have been doing so much necromancy, they've bleached out their own color, that at the same time, people who are born with that color, born with a whiteness, for example, are looked upon as undesirable and should be killed. Mm. So it's not all it's not all great. But I had to but 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 it had to even in that case, it still had to be balanced. I still had to have a contrasting view. There still had to be something that complicates um, that view. Otherwise, it would sound like I'm just score settling. Well, I'm talking about counterbalancing a view. So this trilogy is the same story told through three different surviving witness testimonies, mm-hmm. which are, I'm presuming, are going to be contradicting each other. Absolutely. And um, this isn't a postmodern move or isn't only a postmodern move in, mm-hmm. in the sense that you've mentioned that African storytelling traditions are often told by tricksters. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit more about truth and authenticity in relationship to story mm-hmm. with regards to uh, these yeah. three narratives? Yeah, I think there's an assumption we make in the West that the very fact of a telling of a story means it's true. And I mean true in a sense that it's facts. I mean true in a sense that there's a certain authority we give on the telling of a story that the fact, just the fact that it's being told means there's some veracity to it. Um, whereas in a lot of ancient African storytelling, not as African, ancient African, but folk tales, a lot of the stories my grandparents used to tell me, truth was shifting all the time. If my grandfather is telling me a story, I know he's also trying to pull the rug out from under me. Mm. I know he's also trying to, he puts some puzzles and tricks and outright lies in there. Um, because the trickster, the, the, a story is not just me telling you something and you believing it wholeheartedly. It's me dropping clues, me dropping things, me diverting you, me twisting and turning you, and you doing some work and figuring out what are you really trying to tell me. Um, that's one of the ways in which how fables worked. I tell you a story so that you can get the undercurrent meaning. Um, with a lot of these stories, is I am the trickster telling the story, so you have to be alert. And tell me and, and, and decipher. Truth becomes detective work. 
of all the things I'm throwing at you, what do you think is true? What do you believe? Mm. And I know I wanted that, you know, that for, for the novel for the novel as well. Because it means the burden of truth now becomes the reader's. It's what do you, what, you know, which one of these do you choose to believe? The way the trilogy is going to work is, you know, I'm not doing a, I'm not going to write a part four where we go, what really happened was. <laughs> uh, it's not happening. Yeah. So the readers are going to have to choose at the end of this exercise, the readers are going to have to choose who's telling the truth. So could you read book two first and you book could. one last? Yeah. I mean, I'd love people to read them in whatever order. Yeah. But say you come across this trilogy six years from now, you can read it in any order you want. Yeah. Because um, I know I wanted that as well, that you can read it in any order you want and and it would still, um, you know, it would still flow for one because I'm, I'm writing it in that, that kind of way. Each novel is – the novels on one hand are essential together because they add up to three versions of a story where you have to do the work. At the same time, each novel will be totally self-contained. Hmm. Well, this question might be a premature question, but you've you've once you said that you've once considered yourself a Victorian novelist, mm-hmm. and that uh, a brief history of Seven Killings was your loosest and riskiest novel, mm-hmm. and that winning the Booker Prize sort of affirmed for you that writing in a less constrained way, in a way that felt more like you was working. Mm-hmm. So. If A.S. Byatt is right that each novel teaches you how to write the next one, mm-hmm. what can we expect next from you post-trilogy? She's absolutely right. Absolutely right. I remember reading that, and I was like, oh, my God, it's so true. Each novel I've written has taught me how to write one before. Uh, my first novel was the first novel where I thought I can trust a novel to the voice of the people. So it wrote, the second novel came with all in Pato. And but that's still a very classic idea of a novel, which is why I think a lot of people that tends to be their favorite. Um, it's a very classic idea of a novel. It's a Victorian novel. In fact, it's like a Jane. It's it's a yeah. It's a Victorian novel. That's a novel that taught me that I can actually totally break with everything I think a novel should be. Hmm. Um, you know, and um, and you know, and 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 write the novelist in your head. Brief history taught me a lot of things. One. How to write about queerness with a very matter-of-fact, almost cavalier attitude, um, where even if I, as a person, I'm still getting used to walking in those in that in those shoes, my characters are way beyond it. Um, Brief history taught me to remember that my characters are already functioning in a world, even if it's new to me. It's new to me. I'm just writing it. But it's hard for me. I've never had to pay attention to it before. That even though I am new to the novel as a writer, my characters are living in my characters are living in those worlds for years. If you know, Suglan is three hundred and thirteen years old. I've been writing the book two years. She's been in it for three hundred and thirteen. Right. Um, so the brief history taught me to remember how my characters should move in a book. Nearly everybody in that world. I am the newest person to the world. So I have to write it like a journalist who just jumped onto the story. And so, yeah, she's absolutely right. I can, I can see in very clear ways how each novel prepared me for the following one. Do, we, do you know what your next project is? Well, the next project is, is, a, is a sequel, and it's told by Sagalan. And for those people who've read it, and if you're going to read it, you'll realize that 
if she's the person telling the next story, this is going to be some <laughs> radically different. It really is. I am. I, I've been warning readers. I'm like, you may have developed some emotional attachments to the first book. You might want to reconsider those. <laughs> well, it was great having you on the show today, Marlon. This was great. Thank you. We're talking today to Marlon James, the author of Black Leopard, Red Wolf. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, for those subscribed to the bonus archive, we are adding to the archive Marlon James reading his essay, Why I'm Done Talking About Diversity, or Why We Should Try an All-White Diversity Panel. Also, in the spirit of the inauguration of the new partnership with Tin House, for all Patreon supporters, at any and all levels, we're putting up an amazing one-hour craft talk by Marlon from the 2015 Tin House Writers' Workshop called The Nine and a Half Rules of Seduction that is supremely useful for both aspiring and established writers, but also incredibly funny and entertaining to boot. This all joins bonus material by Laylee Long Soldier, Diane Williams, Vicky Now, R.O. Kwan, Sheila Hetty, Boris Gander, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. I'd also like to thank Jesse Ball, who single-handedly put this show on solid footing when several years ago, out of the blue, he sent me three boxes of his out-of-print book, Vera and Linus, to use as thank you gifts. This one act of generosity was pivotal. Do listen to my conversation with Jesse Ball and do buy Jesse Ball's books. His latest, The Census, the New York Times called his most personal and best to date. I'd also like to thank Ben Parzibach, who has been my mostly unpaid, sometimes woefully underpaid, tech support all these years, and has held the show together from behind the scenes as a miracle worker. He is a great writer with Small Beer Press, the publishers of Sophia Samatar, Ursula K. Le Guin, Ted Chang, and Kelly Link. Seek out Ben Parzabach's two books, Couch and Sherwood Nation, and listen to our conversation about the latter. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapati to Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.